Welcome, everyone, to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. I told him not to hang out around here. The Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 108, Cold Steel, is sponsored by Midday Rosé. Enjoy a glass. Enjoy three while your son hides a knife in his book bag. Pete, the adventure continues. We have S.H.I.E.L.D. tomorrow. We have Runaways continuing next week. Continuing with Punisher here as we as we are roughly three-quarters of the way through. So could not be a better time to be podcasting the MCU than now. Particularly with news that the MCU might get bigger in the next couple weeks, months, or years. It definitely could, Matt. We'll talk about that a little later. Right now, take us, please, to your recap. The episode opens with Billy Russo visiting a woman in the hospital. It plays largely in monologue as she is mute, but generally responsive. As Billy's monologue unfolds, the loving son transforms into a vindictive man, ostensibly keeping her there drugged and against medical need. All is revenge for having abandoned him shortly after birth. After the title card, Micro provides a handy recap. Agent Orange is the director of covert operations for the CIA, old power, and old money. The plot gains momentum as Micro notices the cameras in his home aren't working. Can't Frank go check it out? Frank does that. Thank you, flowers being brought as a pretense. Frank and Sarah chat, and Frank sees that she has unplugged the family Wi-Fi router to punish her son, Zach. Frank reconnects the router for her, and they share some wine. Sarah talks about couples and the future and when to be ready for love again. Frank says nothing, but gets from her an enchilada and a hug and a kiss, which they both agree was awkward. Frank makes his way back to Micro's garage, where the latter is drunk, and blames no one for the kiss. At least, he says so. Sharing drinks, they talk about meeting their wives. At times, Micro's drunkenness makes it, shall we say, a little weird. The huge takeaway? Frank intends on killing Agent Orange. Ultimately, Frank, almost a supporting character in this episode, is asked by Sarah to talk to Zack about his angry behavior. The boy is simply in pain, he says, and doesn't know how to deal with it. He ultimately bonds with Frank after being scared straight by a marine knife, and Micro is left wondering how his boy can continue without a father. In Madani's apartment, she and Billy are, um, wrapping up some shower time. Afterwards, as they dress, Madani teases Billy about his war wounds, joking about his shoulder injury. That one is no joke. It's the result of a man who attacked 11-year-old Billy when the older man's affections were soundly rebuffed. Later, at the office, Madani talks, in her bugged office, about using Jack Lyons, the arms peddler, to set a trap for Frank Castle. Sam also jokes about Madani having an eye for pretty men. That said, Madani's real plan is on paper in the conference room. She's been speaking for the bug, and will put the fake plans online. Later, Billy meets Agent Orange. The need for Frank Castle to be taken out is hammered home, as is the idea that Billy needs to hire outside muscle for the job. They do just that, Billy reconnecting with old, burned commandos who will be well-paid and get the proverbial Billy Russo ticket 
out of the country when the job is done. The job is, of course, thought to be a Frank Castle buy, but that's actually a ruse by the Department of Homeland Security. Billy and company quickly under fire are in dire need of help, and Billy quickly reads the landscape with that firefight breaking out in an abandoned building. He ultimately sacrifices his own crew, shoving one into a hail of bullets and killing another himself. He almost makes it away, but is cornered by Stein. Stein has the masked Billy throw away his gun and his marine knife, but ultimately Stein gets stabbed by Billy's hidden wrist blades, but not before Billy's face is revealed. Stein bleeds to death as Madani finds him. The episode ends with Madani in shock, cleaning the blood off her in her bathroom, Billy tenderly cleaning her bloodied, undressed body. Pete, top to bottom, I dare say, I think I know where this list is going to start, but take us to the top of our list for villain, villainous folks in this episode. Well, I think you got to start with Billy Russo. Uh, here's a guy that, particularly with the way the episode ends, um, has, like the kids say, Matt, no chill. It is an amazing, dramatic job that they do in that first scene because you really, I mean, there's a warmth as, as things open, um, but but the situation is not adding up. You get that mm -hmm. maternal vibe or he's treating her like a, you know, as a maternal figure, but doesn't call her mom right away. It's so well lit, uh, so, so well written rather. And just that slow reveal of him being increasingly you know, awful to her. And then that, that notion of he's giving her the time to think, uh, as retribution for all the years he was in group homes and had to think you, you kind of want to be with the revenge here, but, yeah. but it doesn't work. And that's part of the construction of it. It's, it's, you're supposed to feel icky from word go. I mean, you, you feel for him, but we know he's a terrible person. So, um, that doesn't make uh, any of his upbringing right. Um, surely it had a hand in the guy he would become, but boy, is it, yeah, icky is, is what you come away with. And then, you know, by the end of the episode, for him to be sponging the blood off Madani in the bathtub, and I, I think it, it's prime theory territory as well, Matt. I mean, certainly, this is such a well-constructed episode because, as, as you mentioned, Pete, there he is tenderly, at the end of the episode, tenderly sponging Madani in her moment of emotional need, uh, sponging Stein's blood off of her, sponging the blood that Billy himself shed, uh, mm. you know, in, indirectly onto Madani. Um, all of those pieces would have been enough, you know, the whole, the whole DHS attack and all that, that all would have been enough to me. It is so narratively brave though, with this clear villain in the episode, what do we get smack dab in the middle? This story of how he was attacked by an older man when he was 11 years old, you can't help but feel sympathy for him in mm -hmm. an episode that in the beginning and in the middle and in the end, you are sickened by him. Yeah, this entire episode is about scars and the tending to them, whether they are physical or whether they are mental. 
But we bring it around, Matt, to another bill. That would be uh, William Bill Rollins the third. He of the Virginia Rollinses, also director of covert operations for the CIA. It's the first time we've gotten that. Yeah, in this really interestingly constructed episode uh, in which I dare say Frank Castle is a supporting character, although he gets plenty of screen time, um, to get further into knowing, you know, who who remains to me uh, Agent Orange, to see that he's not just a man of self-made power or a man of circumstance you know he he it, it's leveled that he took the uh the injury and used that as a stepping stone which you know sometimes you deal with the you deal with the cards you're dealt um but that he comes from privilege i mean old virginia money i didn't know that was a thing but it makes sense mm-hmm. and just this guy that 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 is uh that thinks himself our superior, not just Frank, not just Billy, but thinks himself superior to the audience mm-hmm. in every level. I, I mean, you don't get much more in a bad guy who we are roundly hoping gets his comeuppance by the end of this first season. No, he is completely unctuous and that he's pretty much dropped this in Billy's lap like, all right. You take care of this, you know, I'm in the gravy train and, and you've got to, you know, help big daddy out here, uh, to, to make sure that, uh, Frank and, uh, Stein and Madani are problems go away. Yeah. And, and I think it's to the credit of the episode, how sparingly orange is used, um, because, you know, he's been this mysterious force in other episodes, or he's been this uh, th- this incendiary force when we do some of the flashback uh, footage to Afghanistan. But here, it's almost that he's being elevated away from the story so that he can take the narrative place as the big bad. He's kind of there in our hearts, but but they're positioning him where there really is this distance, and they're making the, they're making the steps greater from what they were, say, last episode, where it's. Uh, Frank to the Colonel to Orange. Now it's these increasing layers and this increasing pushback from from you know uh, extensions of the CIA, albeit extensions of the CIA money to Anvil, Anvil money off the books to this uh, this burned crew that that then gets burned by Billy. But right, it's only getting worse, which is narratively where we should be after eight episodes. Well, vis-a-vis the handoff to Anvil and now Billy having to go outside of Anvil because this needs to be off the books, recruiting these mercs here. And, you know, some are, you know, rougher around the edges than others, but they're looking for this big payday. Uh, There's clearly somebody Billy needs dead. Some of them are more up for it than others. All of them wind up dead, some at the hands of the Department of Homeland Security, others at the hands of Billy himself. Which I think only reinforces Billy as the ultimate villain in this episode. Uh, You then add to it an answer to a question that we had had in earlier episodes, which was the attack in in Kentucky, the attack on Gunnar Henderson. Mm -hmm. Who are these guys that are that are? armed soldiers what's what are the particulars here oh they were anvil people and it's been swept under the rug as a training exercise or something um that certainly answers our questions as to like the legality of it and all that 100 percent illegal 
Uh, but the notion that he's already thrown nine guys and gals to the wolves, uh, you know, by way of uh, Frank and Gunner having killed them, now it's now it's load up for more. And have you noticed, Pete, the new the the new curse that you can get from Billy is we'll get you out of the country on my boat. Yeah, don't don't take a ride from this guy. <laughs> don't, don't don't accept uh, uh, the offer of a new life from him. You're, you're going to wind up in the next life. Uh, lastly, Matt, I want to talk about our boy Zach. This young actor, first of all, he's phenomenal, uh, mm-hmm. and what he can do with no dialogue. I mean, can you imagine being in the writers' room and saying? all right, this entire scene is going to hinge on some 10-year-old who could be having a bad day or be liking a girl or whatever it is. Right. Isn't going to be, you know, it's going to be professional, but it won't be present the way, a, you know, a, a veteran of stage and screen will be. He is just phenomenal. And this notion that he's he's turning into this villain due to the simple lack of a male role model in his life. Um, and and Frank is able to read the situation. I dare say, Pete, in Frank's most villainous moment where he knows he's scaring oh Zach. God. <laughs> but wow. The, this show continues to amaze me with where it will go. Um, there are things on this show I did not ever think we would see on this show and on a Marvel Cinematic Universe TV show. Holding the knife to this child's neck after they find it. Um, I mean, certainly the, the, the effect, the, the message delivered, I think the way they wrote it to come around, you know, they're, they're playing catch later on. You had the feeling, Oh, was he going to see his dad was, was, was the cat going to be out of the bag instead it's not. And, you know, he breaks down and it's cathartic and everything there. I I really want to see continued development of that storyline because I was fixed to my TV, Matt, um, with the, the, the Frank Zach scene, um, you know, the, the things he would tell this child. I mean, listen, the, the kid is a bully and a thug at this point. He's hurting inside is why he's turning it back on other people. We need to understand that. But just because, you know, your mommy was terrible or, you think your dad is dead is not licensed to be an awful human being. I think what is so wise about the way this is presented as well is, you know, this can't continue. You know that once micro, uh, hopefully in a happy manner, resumes his life with his family, um, (laughs) you know that he will be amorous with his with his wife again. And and I don't think that we fault her at all for her actions in this episode because she believes her husband to be dead. Mm -hmm. Time has gone on needs of the heart needs of needs of, uh, of the body, et cetera. No, no harm. And the way that Frank dealt with it too. Uh, I mean, this is a different Frank castle than the one we met in the beginning of daredevil season two. Um, so there's been growth there. And if he's ever able to get himself into a place where he's not on the run and his story can continue that is not dependent on revenge or getting rid of people, (laughs) um, I'm really interested to see where that can go. But, yeah, uh, you you talk about the the thing with the wife and everything that goes with that – but for Frank to so show restraint, you know, knowing where to punch the guy, 
give him his say. All right. It, it happened. I, I, I pulled back. She kissed me. He never even bothered to say that he, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Lieberman keeps telling him you kiss my wife when, you know, he's watching the feed. That was not the way it went. The fact that <laughs> no pun intended, but the fact that now, now the Frank and micro are strange bedfellows where they both need to work in order to free micro from his exile to be able to let him to go home. But at times micro has to send Frank in to yeah. be, you, you know, the, the man of the house, not that, not, not that Sarah isn't running things to, to, to very fine ability, not to say that she, she, you know, she or any woman can't, can't run things solo, but to, to go attend to some of those things that, that, that micro that Lieberman wishes he was there to take care of. It, it's headed for a collision and a collision, which is emotional. It's not the showdown of the guns, the bombs, the dynamite, whatever it is, uh, in the interim, you know, I wonder at what point does a writing room switch over from writing to a character, writing for a character, to writing for an actor? I think of all the times that we've seen Berenthal, I guess the twice that we've seen Berenthal on stage at New York Comic Con, and he's not the big brassy Shane. He's not the big uh, Punisher. Humble guy, introspective. And I wonder at what point in the scripting they say, we need to pull that out of him a little bit. In this scene, Frank Castle just needs to be John Barenthal and show that restraint there um, because it's we are able to leave that kiss scene without any judgment on any of the three characters, Micro as the voyeur. It's because of that restraint. We don't fault her. We don't fault him. We don't fault Micro for his diverg divergence of emotions. This is a scene that you can only get courtesy fiction and have it play out as it does i mean his wife who thinks that he is dead is with let's call frank what he is he, he is a mass murderer with a very specific agenda okay and the husband watching all of this uh and yes frank's the hero and we know that we he's killed for good reasons yet here they are all are in this situation again it's just tremendously compelling tv and uh, who would have thought at the beginning of the season we would wind ourselves into this situation? It, it, I mean, it, it is phenomenal. The villainy that we are getting, the conflict that we are getting. Pete, so too are the theories that we've been getting. What's on your radar? Well, let's talk about when you get at, in a shootout with your girlfriend, how that goes. <laughs> um, is that Billy at the end of the episode with Madani having picked her up from the scene. She was last seen calling for help in her shock. And it's very clearly portrayed to us in such a way as she calls and we hear the echo and she's, you know, there with Sam and, and she's, you know, they're giving us various uh, uh, audio effects. Did Billy grab her and, and bring her home? Does she know in some way, shape, or form either completely or suspect that Billy killed Sam? Because the way that you were left with Sam, you're just waiting. He's going to say Billy or mm. or whatever. And we never got that. And I think it's for a very particular reason. 
my read is no, that she has no idea. The way I fill in that that gap narratively is is not that there was some sort of, oh, Superman just left? Well, at least Clark Kent is here. I just kind of read it as some period of time goes by, you know, backup arrives, the scene is assessed, et cetera, et cetera. She is debriefed to, to whatever degree she has to. Uh, perhaps there's narrative license that she's not cleaned up until she gets home. I fully allow that. I wonder what the lobby of her apartment building was like as she walked through her face covered in blood. Again, that's narrative license there. I just think he showed up at the time where the de facto boyfriend would show up. Someone made a call or she made a call. Um, That sort of thing. I read her shock as, as, as shock and not, um, not kind of logically processing things. I also think, you describing the the sound effects that are that are showing her going into shock rarely if ever have i stopped to think of a of a gender take in this you know in terms of she she's a female who's in charge i think she's pre- presented at work in a very um gender neutral way same thing here with the shock i think had we cut straight to her nude in the bathtub and being being caressed and cradled by a man there might have been a different gender reading there, but the fact that we mm-hmm. see the shock take over and we are as overwhelmed. And Pete Stein, there was not a blessed thing that we had against him in these no. entire eight episodes. Um, I got to tell you, when he was introduced, I really didn't care for him. And when he was killed, that that was a brutal scene all the way around. It Billy did to us what he did to Stein. Yeah, and and I think it's just to, to to complete the answer to your question. I think that her shock is just the shock that any one of us would feel in that being in that situation. On top of it, losing a coworker and a friend. On top of it, another botched mission. Her whole world, her whole whole self identity as a professional, as a reliable person, is falling apart. Where is Lewis in this episode, Matt? Oh my goodness! I mean, talk about. Talk about the brilliance of doing something with nothing. It continues to be the most stomach churning thing that we've seen in this show when he's putting together that pressure cooker, as we discussed in the previous episode, just because, you know, we've had that in our part of New Jersey executed, mm-hmm. you know, very poorly by a, by a dummy. I'm happy to say since caught since in jail, et cetera. Um, but to me, that, that that presses into the real world just because it touched our, our community. And, and by extension, I dare say, you know, all of us with, with some of these real world things. But, I mean, we're back to Hitchcock here. What's the definition of suspense? It's not to explode a bomb. It's to say a bomb will explode in 10 minutes and then make the audience sit through those 10 minutes. Here or he an is episode. Not, <laughs> yeah, like here he is not in the episode and and we need to sit through that knowing that that's going to come back too. Matt, will Zach join Anvil? Zach may be old enough one day to join Anvil. I think he's probably about three or four years away from working papers, and maybe another eight or nine away from uh, away from you know working as an adult. Is that our is that our flash forward future that Zach is in Anvil? If so, I don't know. I mean, when you consider what this episode does in giving us Billy's story from a backward perspective and then at the end to see him with Madani and to show this tenderness while at the same time we know what he's capable of and how dangerous he is. It makes you worry for Zach all the more. 
Here's a kid that grew up, you know, for the time that he had his father and now he's without, he's got a, a knife, he's stealing things. I mean, he could turn into Billy. In a sense, this is an episode about, about absent fathers in a certain way. Obviously Billy, you know, the, the, cruel and contentious relationship with his mother but by by silence and by implication also not a father figure on the scene indeed the only man of note it appears was the man who 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 tried to attack him um we have micro who's attempting to be the right kind of father or was attempting when he was present now in his absence he still is trying in some way to to be a paternal force and then you have frank who in many ways is the ideal father there's just the heartbreaking tragedy that he has no family to speak of um and then if you want to throw in agent orange as an awful father of sorts to billy now we've gone full circle with lousy dads well, there I think you hit it, Matt. It's that paternal influence or lack of it that is leading Zach down a very dangerous road, has led Billy to where he is. And, you know, look at what Frank has talked about with his parents, um, you know, that they were basically senior citizens, that, you know, the lack of hands-on parenting much more often than not, tends to result in imbalanced, ill-prepared people for our society, which is not really uh, the goal. Not at all. Not at all. It is about that. It is about that familial connection. It is about, you know, it is about passing on the the sense of goodness, the sense of community. That's what it's. That's what it's about. At the end of the day. Yeah, and we're super lucky with our patrons to patreon.com slash fantastic geek. They are our family. They are our muse. They keep the lights on around this place. Indeed, they do. Always appreciative of those helping us out on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. We certainly hope that if you have not visited there, at least stop by, take a little peek, see if anything catches your eye. But Pete, always free. The, 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 the free Pete guarantee is being able to talk to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-9,695 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast anytime you like. We are Fantastic Geek. Visit FantasticGeek.com. Email FantasticGeek at gmail.com. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. For those listening to us on the Pop Culture Podcast, we will be back in the next couple days to talk Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Pete, when will we talk Punisher next on the Punisher-only feed? We will be updating the Punisher feed that will come on Sunday, uh, December 10th. I cannot believe, Pete, that we only have five episodes left, four after this weekend. Uh, this show it is a true privilege to watch and, uh, and certainly hope hope for more episodes beyond it but uh, we'll talk next season down the line pete for now i will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word who's pretty now <laughs> <laughs>